uh, pastoral resident Josh Bond is going to be preaching from Isaiah. And so would you welcome him as he comes? Thank you, Pastor Chuck. <clears throat> and good morning and Merry Christmas Eve day. It's a mouthful, but such a joy and a privilege to be with you here on this, at least for Arizona, uncommonly wintry morning. There was fog when Gracie and I left this morning. What a treat. This morning, would you turn with me, as Pastor Chuck said, to the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 7. This is a day we devote to considering and remembering and rejoicing in the appearance of the Son of God. Isaiah, though it was a book written hundreds of years before that event, the birth of Jesus Christ, the book is written, its main subject matter is the appearance of the Son of God. In God's providence, he inspired the prophet Isaiah to sound the theme of what Jesus' coming would mean. And the text before us today is one that does that especially well, is especially fitting. Christmas season, we know, is festive, um, as lots of lights and decorations and Mariah Carey songs attest. But much like eating too much sugar without substantive food, which is another experience we might identify with soon, having joy without its substance is bound to leave us unsatisfied. So it's for that reason that we turn to Isaiah for his song and poem in chapter 9 of Isaiah to meditate and feast upon the substance of our joy, which is the fulfillment of our hopes in Christ Jesus. In short, Christmas is joyous because this Son of God is what you are hoping for. Whoever you are, and whether or not you've realized it or appreciated it yet, the Son of God's appearance is the fulfillment of your hopes. That is what joy is, receiving what you have hoped for. That causes joy in us, and the appearance of the Son of God is the fulfillment of what you are hoping for. So let's, without further ado, turn to Isaiah 9 and hear from God's word. But first, let me pray for us very briefly. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would open the eye of faith in our hearts and our minds to see the appearance of the Son of God and rejoice in the hope he brings. Amen. This is God's word in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden, his being the nation, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Amen. This is a classic Christmas text, and for good reason. It signals, it announces the joy of everything that the appearance of the Son of God will bring. Isaiah gave this to the people of Israel some 700 years before the birth of Christ, and yet even to them, it was given as a word of consolation. It was given as God's word of hope to his people. They were supposed to hear this and trust and rejoice in the Lord. God's people were, as this text alluded to, in a time of darkness. They were on the brink of war, on the brink of exile, God turning his face away from them because of their sin. And previously in chapter 7, Isaiah had promised that this time of exile, this time of darkness, would end with the birth of Emmanuel, a child whose name means God with us. And the passage we just read explains what he will do, who he will be. The appearance of this son is that with which God consoles his people who walk in darkness. So I want to suggest to us that the key to taking hold of the substance of the joy of this day is to first understand the situation to which it speaks to, to, to grasp the scope of the hope offered here. I'm sorry that that rhymes. The scope of the hope. Thankfully, verses one through five prepare us by poetically portraying the scope of the hope here so that we don't relegate it to something in the past or something that's just for the people of the kingdom of Judah in, in ancient history, but it's something that is present with us now. So verses one through two begin as, as a sort of preface to the good news that come, and they tell us that this appearance is a transition from darkness to light, from gloom to shining. It comes to a people who walk in darkness. The appearance of this sun is light shining on darkness. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase. Who, who are the people walking in darkness? What does that mean? Is darkness a psychological state, a gloominess in morale? Is it 
the darkness that um, loomed over the nation of Israel in this period of history with war overshadowing them. Darkness is a theme used throughout the Bible to jointly refer to all manners of miseries, all manners of sins and defects. Darkness is sort of a catch-all term for all the bad that's in the world. If we just looked around in this section of the book of Isaiah, we'd see him define these different types of darkness. First, we'd see there's a darkness of spirit or, or an inner gloom. In this text, do you see how he, he talks about anguish and the contempt that people were suffering? If we looked back into chapter 8, we would see him talk about distress and anxiety, a state of bitterness, despair, or the lack of hope. Darkness of spirit. Is your spirit ever dark in private moments in times where you are alone. Is your spirit ever dark? Second, there's a darkness of circumstances or, or what we might call dark times. We've already alluded to this, that the, the people who first heard this prophecy were on the brink of their nation being invaded. Maybe that situation seems uh, far off for us, but there are those in the world for whom it is not. Are there not dark times going on in the world? Are there not tremblings of the nations that make you worry? Trends in culture. Isaiah calls this the, the misery at the, from the rod of the oppressor in this passage. He talks about the darkness of death and calamity. Um, verse 5 talks about the, the earth trembling with invasion coming. Dark times. And third, he talks about a darkness of sin. If you read most of the book of Isaiah, one of the things he's most trying to make us see is that the darkness of spirit and the darkness of circumstances in the world are not something abstract or unrelated to the darkness of sin. Darkness is ultimately a result of alienation from God. Isaiah calls the faithful to walk in the light of the Lord in Isaiah 3, 5. But in Isaiah 5.20, he said, sin is an exchanging of light for darkness. So darkness is one metaphor that covers all these sorts of things in, in one swoop. And the significance of bringing that up is because just so, light is a solution to all three of those things. Light is what God gives to address his people and fill them with hope in verses one through two. That's the summary of the good things that the appearance of the Son of God brings. Light shines on all the things hoped for. All the things. To the gloomy, anxious, distressed heart, verse three says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Joy is the opposite of despair, the opposite of anguish. And the you in that verse is the Lord. The Lord, God, has brought joy. He brings an abiding, rich, plentiful joy. Joy like of the plenty of the harvest or of the exaltation at victory. Hasn't your spirit hoped for joy? 
This is what you're hoping for. What would it take for your heart to be filled with joy? Verses four and five give us a cause, two causes of that joy, and it deals with circumstances. The Lord brings light to dark circumstances. He breaks the rod of the oppressor, and all the effects of the invading armies will be burned up and set to the pyre. This is a fulfillment of the hope each of us has for peace. Peace in the world. And not just the absence of fighting, but the presence of justice and righteousness. Our longing to not be used or trampled or beaten, but rather to be treated with the dignity with which God has made us as his image bearers. The longing for peace is promised here. So do you see the scope of the big news, of the, of the good news? Do you see the light the sun brings? It reaches so high as to be the literal hope of nations, to promise peace to war-torn places, to lift up the weary shoulders of people who bore heavy burdens. It reaches so high and it reaches so deep as to make joyous the heart that wallowed in despair. That is the scope of the hope we're talking about here. I say this so that we don't relegate or confine the book of Isaiah to something in the past or something that we think of only in terms of responding to the darkness of spirit or the darkness of circumstances. Isaiah here does not give just spiritual comfort. He does not give just social and external comfort. Neither of those captures the full scope of what he's talking about here. The birth of Christ signals not something merely historical, not something merely past tense. It signals the consolation that God gives to the darkness in this world, the hope which you have been hoping for. If your view of God's deliverance shrinks, so will your hope in him. And if your hope in him shrinks, how much joy can you take in him? If God is no more than a therapeutic comfort to you, you won't understand the universal hope he offers to a world of dark circumstances. And so when you face dark circumstances, your heart will seek something else. You'll think there is something else to hope in when the earth starts shaking. If God, on the other hand, is only a means to a a socio-political end or social change, you'll miss the healing he brings to the darkness in your soul. And in those private moments, in the silence you try to avoid, you will seek something else to fill the void. If If your view of God's deliverance shrinks, your hope in him will shrink. But it need not be so, because Isaiah has painted a picture that encompasses all of those and more. Don't imagine that the light is not shining on you. 
Don't think that this joy is abstract from or unrelated to the darkness you are experiencing. This is what you are hoping for. The light may shine on you. This is what you have been hoping for. How is it that these things are brought about? We've had two for or because statements in verses four and five. Verse six brings us to the main event, the ultimate cause of these things, the center point of the passage. To us, a child is born. You've increased the joy, you've shattered the rod of the oppressor, you have burned the effects of war for, because a child is born to us. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. First, Isaiah tells us a child is born. This picks up what he already prophesied in chapter seven about Emmanuel, that the signal that these good things would begin would be the birth of a child. Accordingly, Matthew tells us in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said about Emmanuel. These things began with the birth we celebrate today. A child is born. But he says next, a son is given, which begins to intimate to us that this son is not just an ordinary child, but a gift from God. Jesus did not come to earth to become a son. He came to become a man. The son of God was given as God's gift to us, not as something we produced, not as something we merited, not a one who takes the government on his shoulders from among us, but one given from on high from God. And lastly, he is given to us, to the people of God, to those who believe in the word of the Lord. Isaiah in chapter eight had gone on a, uh, given a prophecy about believing in the word of the Lord. This is the testimony given to those who trust in the Lord, to you, to us, the people of God. Those who believe in the word of the Lord, this son is given, this son is born to you, church, to you. And as verses two through five prepared us to see, he has come to make true the things you have hoped for, to make them come real. That's why all the names by which he's called in verse six, all those names just serve to identify him as the one who does the things that verses two through five talked about and the things that verse seven we'll see we'll talk about. First, he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And in the, the most literal sense, these would be almost um, military hero type of terms. They would make us think of God's wonderful deeds in the Old Testament, which is a term used over and over to refer to God's acts of deliverance. A wonderful deed is something like the Passover or the parting of the Red Sea, or what's explicitly mentioned in this text, the scattering of Midian in Judges chapter seven. This son born to us will do wonderful things. He will devise them as the counselor of wonderful deeds and with the power of God as mighty God. He brings light, in other words, to dark circumstances. 
When the world is dark and trembles, wonderful counselor, mighty God appears. And this son does not only dispel dark circumstances, but then takes the government upon his shoulders as an everlasting father to the people, as a prince of peace. He brings light to those whose spirits were in darkness and takes them as his children. These names point us to things Christ was born to do in his humanity. Things that Christ became a man to do. But even while they do that, they already point us to the tight, inseparable connection between what this son does and what God does. Already in Isaiah 9, we have a picture of a savior who is fully man and fully God. We'll speak about that more tonight. In any case, God is mighty God, and the Son is mighty God. He does the miraculous acts of deliverance. He rules in the perfect goodness that only God does. This Son brings God's salvation. And he does so not just with comfort to souls, and not just with the dispelling of dark circumstances, but he brings salvation by establishing a kingdom, by taking the government upon his shoulders. And so, verse seven continues. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If you are familiar with a lot of the Old Testament, you can see how this is a fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 to fill David's throne eternally, this time forth and forevermore. But more to the point that we're talking about here, remember that Isaiah pointed us to three aspects of darkness, not just darkness of spirit and of circumstances, but thirdly, of sin. Just as all darkness in some way ultimately stems from sin, so the light that banishes it must ultimately come from God, must ultimately restore fellowship with him. In order to really shine a light on darkness, in order to really cast it out, God's deliverer had to address its ultimate cause, sin the darkness of sin. That's why the light brought by the Savior involves not just the defeat of our enemies, not just the comforting of our hearts. It involves those things, but further, the justifying, the justification of unjust, sinful souls. Justice and righteousness are terms here that stand for um, the full fulfillment of God's law, God's definition of goodness. Think of the Ten Commandments. Justice and righteousness first involves, think of the first four commandments, right love and worship for God. And secondly, five through ten, the uh, right love and just treatment of neighbor. This means that the king who appears, the son who appears, will walk righteously with God and thereby and accordingly lead 
his people into just treatment of one another and right relationship with God. It's through establishing righteousness, through ruling as the king, that the Son of God brings light to dark hearts and dark circumstances. They're connected. And it's that connection that Isaiah points us to see by calling them all darkness. That's why this justice-establishing, law-bringing king is what you are hoping for. Why this is God's word of consolation to us. Throughout this sermon, I've, I've intentionally referred to this son's appearance, not just his birth. Christmas Eve, we specifically remember the birth of Christ, but Isaiah 9 already points us to see that the birth is the beginning, not the point. It's the signal in Isaiah 7 that these good things will start to come true. Isaiah 9 unfolds what those good things are. And appearance, or appear, is a word the New Testament uses all the time to refer to the sum total of Jesus' mission to earth. But if we look carefully at what the New Testament says about Jesus, we'll see that this appearance is really threefold. Or in other words, there are three senses in which we might say the Son of God appears. First, he appeared as a man. When the word of God became flesh, when he was born of Mary in Bethlehem, born the son of David, the son of God appeared. In this sense, the appearance is something in the past, something we look back on and remember, something we celebrate. And it's according to that sense that Jesus, in Matthew 4, begins his ministry going to Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah 9 and says, I'm fulfilling this text we just read. And then goes on next in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he's establishing his kingdom in justice and righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount is about how God, as we just sang, truly taught us to love one another, truly taught us what righteousness means. So when he begins his ministry in Galilee, Matthew says from that time he began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The purpose of that first coming was to put away the darkness of sin. Jesus appeared on earth to deal with the darkness of sin. So Hebrews 9.26 says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The way in which he puts the government on his shoulders is by putting the cross on his shoulders by not just teaching about righteousness, but by providing a way in which righteousness could be established among his people, credited to them. The cross is at the center of his first appearance, and the purpose, 1 John 3, 5 said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and the reason, in verse eight, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The baby born in Bethlehem appeared to overcome the darkness of sin. In that sense, Romans 3.21 says, the grace of God has appeared. It's the one God put forward as a propitiation, Jesus Christ. He takes away sin because, as Isaiah foretold us, his kingdom would be established in justice and righteousness. In this sense, 
He has appeared, and it is what you're hoping for because there's no real dispelling of dark spirits or dark circumstances while sin persists. On you, the light has shone. In that sense, we are reading about something finished. The word of the prophet, praise God, is fulfilled. The prince of peace has made peace by the blood of his cross, Paul says in Colossians 1. To you, he is given. It's not something confined to the past, though. Second, Jesus appears by his spirit to the church. The spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is present among the saints in the church, and what he ministers to us is Christ. Accordingly, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you. Present tense, even to the end of the age. And Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness in the present age. It's this present appearance I've been laboring to help us see this morning, to make apparent. I was tempted to call this sermon, the sun is apparent, because apparent is the adjective form of appear. But I decided that would be um, irreverent. (laughs) By faith, the Son of God appears even now. What does that mean? First, it means the benefits of what Jesus offers are given to us by faith, by hearing God's gracious word and saying, I believe, I trust in that. The context of Isaiah 8 is the kingdom of Judah hearing the word of the Lord and not believing in it, and therefore suffering the darkness of circumstances they were going through. Isaiah tells King Ahaz, if you do not believe, you will not be firm at all. The same is true now with regard to the appearance of the Son of God. Believe that what God has put forward is sufficient for your darkness, that he is the one you are hoping for. Even if you are a Christian, we are ever in danger of putting our hope and our joy in the gospel away into the past, sealing it as my testimony, what God did for me, and then moving on to my problems in the present as if they're unrelated to that. We're ever at risk of growing cold to this light God has shown. Church, you will never be waiting on something different to come. You will never be waiting for somebody else. There's not another hope coming. He has come. The one you're hoping for has come, and he is here. Look at the text and behold him. Behold the good things he brings. I pray that God would make him apparent to you. Read Isaiah 9 and let that light dawn on you. The appearance of the Son of God is what you are hoping for. Consider his appearance before you in the text of scripture, in the gathering of the saints. Church, think of it especially tonight when we take the Lord's Supper, that ordinance given by Jesus, that means of grace specifically meant for us to dwell on the presence of Christ with us and the finished work which shines light to us. Let his appearance be a comfort to your soul now. Let your hopes be fulfilled and rejoice. 
He is what you're hoping for. Friend, what darkness do you walk in? Are you poor? He gives the joy of the harvest. Are you on the verge of defeat? He gives the joy of victory. Are you small? He multiplies his people. Are you burdened or oppressed? He will shatter the rod of the oppressor. Are you trodden upon or walked over? He lifts his people out of contempt and makes them glorious. Are you distressed about the raging of nations? Are you dismayed by the trends in culture? He defeats the tramping warrior. That's the scope of the hope Isaiah has told us about. Friend, are you guilty and unworthy in your soul? He establishes righteousness. He justifies the unjust. He makes holy the unholy. He establishes righteousness by taking the rule upon his shoulders. Praise God, the word of the prophet is fulfilled on you. The light has shone. Jesus appeared to establish righteousness and his ministry on earth was the signal that all of these things were going to begin to come to pass. And yet, the New Testament, even on, on this side of Christ's first appearance, calls us to hope. Paul in Romans 8 says, we do not hope in things we see, but we are waiting on things that have not yet come. Paul says the days are evil. They're dark. Ecclesiastes 11.8 says the days of darkness are many. The, the ongoing reality of darkness in our spirits and in the world is a reality to reckon with. But one of the things Isaiah is showing is that their continued presence does not mean God does not care about them or that he's not doing anything about them. On the contrary, we see here that God is very concerned with the circumstances of the world. We see that his zeal is for the people who are in anguish. His zeal is for those who are distressed and burdened and oppressed. The Prince of Peace cares about wars raging in the world. The Everlasting Father cares about those who are dismayed. Therefore, though, the scriptures tell us to hope in his appearance, now in the training unto righteousness and forward to his coming in glory, which is the third sense of his appearance. This is made explicit in 1 John, 1, 1 John 3, where he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. But in 1 John 3, 2, when he will appear, we shall be like him. And Titus 2, 12 says, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing future tense of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in the hope of the final coming. The first coming reminds us of the second and the first coming is the down payment, the guarantee that the second coming will happen. In which final coming, he will complete all that's said about him. He will banish death. He will end wars. He will bend swords into plowshares. He will unite nations. He will shatter the rods of oppressors. He will burn the blood-soaked garments of war. No more dark circumstances. It's further said about him there in Revelation 21. In that day, there will be no mourning. There will be no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. On them, the light has shone. No more darkness of spirit. 
because the cross sounded the death knell of all those things, and the resurrection is the proof. Now, this is God's comfort to us. This is the substance of our joy. Isaiah prophesied this when the first coming was 700 years away, and it was still meant as hope for God's people. We don't know when the second coming of Jesus will be. It may be 700 more years, it may be seven minutes. Nevertheless, this is given as the consolation to us. Something prophets are particularly designed to do in the, in the Bible is to take things that we see as a sequence and turn them so we see the unity of them. It's like if you sit behind first base in a baseball field, you see home plate, pitcher's mound, second base. But if you sit behind home plate, you see them all in a line. Prophets take God's saving history and put them in a line for us and show how time is no obstacle for God. Accordingly, the last thing Isaiah writes is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's zeal is his ardor for his people, his jealousy for them, his love. His point in saying that is these things are certain. These things are so certain as if they have already happened. God's zeal is so perfect, his plan so sure, his wisdom so eternal, that his promises are as good as already complete. Therefore, rejoice. The appearance of the Son of God is the appearance of God's zeal for us. And if he came the first time, he will come the second. This Son is what you're hoping for. Your hopes are fulfilled. Though some remain to be fulfilled in the future, the appearance of the Son of God is the answer to them, the fulfillment of them. Your hopes are fulfilled in the appearance of the Son of God who was and is and is to come. Church, in that light, the only thing that remains to say is again, look nowhere else. You're not waiting for something else. Your hope is here. Fix your eyes upon the child born to us today as the sign of God's zeal for you, as the light of his salvation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Swell with the joy of hopes fulfilled and look nowhere else, for the Son of God has appeared. And that is the substance of our joy. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Son who is given to us today. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see him apparent before us. We pray that he would appear to us by faith, training us to renounce ungodliness. We pray that when the earth shakes and when our spirits feel anguish, that we would be comforted by the peace he made with his cross and the light in which he's given us to walk. We pray these things in his name, amen.